I am Robert Scherzer, Clinical Associate Professor, UBC Ophthalmology and Visual Sciences, and we are talking about glaucoma for August 2nd, 2009, in which I continue my conversation with Stephen Drantz, Professor Emeritus at UBC, on normal tension glaucoma. In this episode, we discuss the risk factors in addition to pressure that affect the progression of normal tension glaucoma. Please check the show notes of the podcast for references. Follow me on Twitter, where I am Rob Scherzer, and on my blog at wholelotofrob.com, where I cover glaucoma, health, and technology. Well, now, we were then in a position to see the tremendous variability of the disease and were able to uh, link the variation with some of the other risk factors in those patients to see whether some of these risk factors were responsible for the variation. And that's where we found uh, that um, females, untreated females, had a more rapidly progressed, steeper curve, more rapid progression of their disease, untreated disease. Uh, we found that um, uh, migraineurs had a more rapid uh, uh, development of the disease than non-migraineurs. Uh, when I say migraineurs, I'm talking about people with a history of migraine. Um, sec and thirdly, we showed that people who had a disc hemorrhage at the baseline time of the study, when they entered the study, uh, progressed more rapidly than those patients who did not have such a baseline hemorrhage. And um, uh, we, th those were obviously different groupings of patients. Uh, among the migraineurs, of course, there were a number of people with Raynaud's phenomena, cold hands and feet, right. and, and they um, uh, behaved like the migraineurs. They, in other words, they, they, they progressed more rapidly than people who didn't. But the number of, uh, of Raynaud's phenomenon uh, was relatively small and one couldn't really draw, draw any conclusions. Mm -hmm. But the femaleness and the migraine were certainly separable. In other words, they were both, uh, they both had uh, prognostic implications. Now, given that with studies you could only really prove what you set out to look for, how did you end up deciding to look for these factors? Well, th those factors were looked ahead of time. In other words, we already knew when we designed the study, at least I knew when we designed the study, and I insisted that uh, smoking and uh, uh, migraine... Uh, and of course, disc hemorrhages, uh, without saying that all of these things were properly annotated by all the contributing uh, physicians, and the record keeping was very good. So we could then go back 
and therefore we talked about cold hands and feet and Reno's phenomenon because that was already talked about after Phelps uh, published his original work on on migraine. Uh, femaleness was very unexpected. We then... So, yes, no, go on. I was just going to ask, I guess we'll get back to tie this together with how we approach patients today. Yes. If you're going to continue with more of the history. Well, no, I, I, I then, the, 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 I've talked about the four, pa four papers. There right. were the clinical trial, the scientific study of pressure, uh, the untreated disease, and the, uh, uh, the risk factors in addition to intraocular pressure that obviously influenced the process. Right. We should clarify, too, then, these risk factors then are risk factors for progression as opposed to risk factors for having normal cancer yes, glaucoma? Yes, they time. are risk factors for progression and they are not the same as the risk factors for glaucoma. But some of them obviously appear in both groups. We then, uh, when we realized that there were other risk factors that we could find, we then decided that we should go back to the randomized data study and really look whether the grouping, subgroupings with those risk factors behave differently in terms of what the pressure did to influence the disease. Now you realize that by this time some of those groups were not necessarily large enough to draw some conclusions, but there were some very clear-cut conclusions which we could reach even from those small groups. Well, the first one was that um, uh, males, um, that being a male, uh, really showed much less um, danger much less effect from pressure reduction in the randomized study. Uh, the females, uh, on the other hand, showed a very definite change in their course. The migraineurs also... So that is, it lowering the pressure in females is more likely to keep them from progressing. That is correct, to males. ameliorate their right. progression. Whereas pressure reduction in males uh, not really statistically significant. Uh, one always has to be very careful when one speaks about such groupings because this does not mean that all females behaved one way and all males behaved another way. There are obviously traits that we don't recognize in uh, sex distribution that... that uh, Obviously, there are some males who didn't do well, and, and presumably some males also improved uh, if they had a major sort of pressure factor. Um, the next thing that was very interesting was that patients who had a family history of glaucoma uh, did not improve with um, uh, 
pressure reduction, whereas those who did not showed a very definite effect of, the, of pressure reduction. And we showed also that patients who had a, a vas cardiovascular disease mm -hmm. uh, did not do nearly as well as patients who did not have cardiovascular disease with pressure reduction. Patients who had a family history of stroke uh, did not show uh, the same uh, effect of pressure reduction as patients who did not have such a family history. So now these then are, it was very clear therefore that there is a difference in how pressure reduction affects different subgroupings and although we wouldn't uh, wouldn't say that all the groups were, uh, would satisfy every statistical requirement. They were statistically different, but not ne necessarily in the sense that one would want for the rest of the study. But I mean, when you talk about maleness and femaleness, the, the groups were large, and there was just no question that they behaved differently. And also, given that we wouldn't alter our treatment, we would still be attempting to lower the pressure, whether it's female or male. Yes. Uh, we can't just generalize. No, with no. no. In other words, they were, they were randomized not because of subgrouping. Right. They were randomized in the study, and obviously many of them belonged, everybody belonged to some subgroup. Yep. And so really that was the, the those were the conclusions of, of the study. And... Um, they have some very interesting implications. Yeah, they sure do. Any any pointers then when seeing a patient who has what you're convinced is normal tension glaucoma and how to approach them? Well, I think that if I were purist about this, I would say that no patient with normal tension glaucoma should really be started on treatment until they show that they are currently progressing because 50% of our patients did not progress and therefore theoretically pressure reduction might not have been terribly beneficial to them. Right. That's a pretty important point. It's particular, that is important. One point, though, that always comes up when giving recommendations like that has to do with something else that was looked at in the study, and that is, what about when the defect is close to fixation? Well, um, the patients who, there were four patients who lost fixation during a total treatment, uh, a total study, of whom three were in the pressure-reduced group and one was in the non-pressure-reduced group. So you can't draw any conclusion from that, right. but certainly um, I think in view of the fact that we didn't really show any difference in the behavior of those who threatened fixation from those who didn't, I don't think that should be a factor. But let's be very clear. Uh, clinically, uh, 
if a person comes with the history that three of his sisters uh, were blinded by the disease and both father and mother lost their vision, uh, one doesn't wait. One doesn't have to wait. I think one says, never mind the science, um, I think this patient should be made as safe as possible. Right. Didn't, didn't the science, if you're going back to the study, say if there's a family history, they were less likely to progress? Uh, uh, no. <laughs> or the, to respond the, to treatment? The, the, the patients who had no family history of glaucoma um, were less likely to pro progress. B5, where we looked at the subgroups uh, and the effect of pressure reduction on their on their disease, the patients who had a family history of glaucoma uh, had a better response to pressure reduction uh, than those who didn't. Okay. So that's consistent with our gut feeling that we would be more quite, inclined to treat. Quite, quite consistent with it. Yes. It would also make patients feel more comfortable to have something being done. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, the other thing arising out of this is, well, having said that really I would recommend that nobody who is diagnosed as normal tension glaucoma should really be treated until it can be shown that they are currently at having a problem. And that includes uh, risk disc hemorrhages and it includes uh, other things, but uh, one needs to be, uh, I think one really shouldn't be attacking people uh, with pressure reduction until they are known to belong to the grouping that is progressing. Okay. Remember, really only 5% had a rapid progression and of course that becomes It'd be very, obvious when you're following very clear. You see I a mean, change. two or three visits, and you right. can see the thing just being eaten up. Incidentally, we this isn't published anywhere, but uh, obviously there were patients, there were females uh, who were migraineurs who had a disc hemorrhage, mm -hmm. and if one sees there some of their uh, slopes of deterioration, it is. Precipitous. Wow. Now, this wouldn't. This is something that now would be completely speculative. Now that we do pachymetry on patients, measuring their corneal thickness, and we had a patient with uh, a low pressure, and they have extremely thin corneas. Uh, <laughs> more inclined to treat, or still wait for progression? Well, no, I would. I would not change on that parameter um, uh, because I, I don't think that even if it is known that their pressure is elevated as opposed to being the normal tension glaucoma group, that really doesn't make any difference to the glaucomatous process. Uh, if one looks at normal tension glaucoma and glaucoma as separate diseases, one is completely missing the boat. There are Patients with glaucoma, uh, which includes both normal tension glaucoma and glaucoma, who have 
certain groupings of risk factors. And even the normal tension glaucomas, the vast majority of them responded well to pressure, which means that pressure remains a, an important factor in the majority, even of those who, who, whose pressure was never elevated. Uh, uh, that, that really is important, but I don't think I would change necessarily the advice that, that, that should wait. I think we covered a lot of important points, and unless there were any other things you wanted to throw in? Uh, yes, I think maybe when we do treat somebody with pressure reduction and they continue to lose ground uh, in spite of the fact that the pressure has been reduced, our immediate uh, teaching and whether it's even teaching or just gut feeling is to reduce the pressure further. Right. Now, uh, I think we need to stop uh, and think and say maybe this is one of those people who has some of these other risk factors that are probably causing the deterioration because you can have people who have no pressure, you have pressure, pressure insensitive disease right. from the other things, but at both pressure levels, right. high pressure level. And then you're more likely to cause harm well, by extreme surgery yes. to get the pressure and, and you should digit. at least see whether you can find some of these other ingredients and, you know, treat them before one attacks the process with more of, of the same. 30% of pressure reduction is not, not inconsiderable. Right. And certainly there are, of course, many surgical patients who have much more than 30% pressure reduction. I guess one of those other factors that we look at a lot uh, lately is blood pressure dropping. Oh, blood oh pressure yes. Dips. Well, you know, there are a number of other factors. We have only looked, we only know about the things that we looked at. Uh, apnea, you know, uh, sleep apnea and uh, uh, dramatic uh, blood pressure responses, the history of a shock-like right. state in the individual. I mean, those are very important markers, but we don't stop to think about those. And I think when pressure reduction has not produced what we want, at least there should be a reflection that this is so. There are many things. Well, I still do look at all of those because the new patient consult sheet that I have on my computer is just a copy of your original consult well, sheet. Yes. So all those factors are checked for at all of your yes. patients. Yes. Well, I think that is... But, you know, I can, I'm mindful of a lady who was sent to me from um, Arizona or... Mm -hmm. Um, Colorado and because she had a failing glaucoma in spite of having had very successful surgery right. in terms of pressure reduction and listening to her history of stress uh, in business mm -hmm. and in her family where her, she was threatened by her son you know, it, 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 it's a, a litany 
right. of major stress. Now, this woman would be vasospastic, uh, likely to be vasospastic all the time, and um, smoked like a chimney, uh, and to sort of reduce her pressure even further is probably not the answer to the to the disease in her. Right. Uh, it's a fascinating field. That it is. The disc appearances also can throw some light on mechanisms. Um, the migraineurs and particularly the women have characteristically these sector-shaped visual uh, disc changes uh, with scotomas close right. to fixation or mostly superior, and they can of course be recognized very easily by ophthalmoscopy. Similarly, the peripapillary choroidal atrophy and the you know the beta alpha zones right. of change always indicate that there is cardiovascular disease going on. I, I mean by that uh, uh, arteriosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Right, and the and beta zone has been shown to be associated with progression. Yes, exactly, and and therefore when one looks at discs, they tell a big story. And particularly if there is a generalized enlargement of the cup or reduction of the neuroretinal rim uh, all over the place as opposed to in sector shapes, uh, those are people who are practically never seen without a well-elevated intraocular pressure. Pressure is almost certainly a factor. Uh, the myopes behave like the people who have the localized uh, changes, and they do have localized changes in their optic nerve. It's often right. not easy to find, but yeah. but uh, And it's often not easy to tell when a defect has just been there forever yes. from their myopia and when it's actually glaucomatous. Yes. Yeah, but no, when you look at the disc, uh, it, it gives you the story when, you know, and I'm now not talking about uh, stereoscopy, uh, stereoscopy on the slit lamp with very small magnification. Yep. Yep. But you know, you, you have a, yes, direct ophthalmoscope, or, or, or yes. actually even a Goldman lens mm -hmm. uh, contact lens on the slit lamp with good magnification. Uh, no, that's uh, mind you, takes time, yep. costs money. Is it effective? Is it efficient? I don't know, but that's certainly what I would like somebody to look at if right. I was in that situation. I think we. I think that could be a whole other podcast just discussing the discs. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yes. So maybe we will save that for another day. And thank you so much for talking Good. tonight. Great fun. That's our show for today. In the next episode of Talking About Glaucoma, I will be talking with Cindy Hutnick from University of Western Ontario IVI Institute on how to properly take central corneal thickness into account when assessing patients with glaucoma. 
Talking About Glaucoma is a non-profit podcast that I produce once or twice each month as time permits in AAC format that includes chapter markers and in MP3 format that does not. I am the director of the West Coast Glaucoma Center in Vancouver and clinical associate professor of ophthalmology and visual sciences at the University of British Columbia. Please send comments or suggestions to podcast at iguy.org that's podcast at I-G-U-Y dot org. And follow me on Twitter, where I am Rob Schertzer. Also, check out my work website at westcoastglaucoma.com and my glaucoma health and technology blog at wholelotofrob.com. Please read the latest debate on healthcare reform, add your comments, and share with others so that all Americans can get the care they need.